Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt. I'm Samantha Rosehill. This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a new podcast for thinking with and against Hannah Arendt. Join me and my guest as we address the most pressing political questions of our time, from love and friendship to loneliness and totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt Between Worlds is now available from the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kojo Karam. We talked about his new book, Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. We chatted about how the British Empire and its legacy continues to structure the UK and world economies and why the supposed opposition between critics of Britain's imperial inheritance and the material concerns of ordinary working class people ignores the way that economic innovations of empire and decolonisation, from tax havens and outsourcing to the corporate form itself, continue to structure all of our lives. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is We Uyghurs Have No Say by Elam Toti. In the northwest of China, the Chinese government has imprisoned more than a million Uyghurs in re-education camps. One of the incarcerated whose sentence, unlike most others, has no end is Ilam Toti, an intellectual economist and prolific writer. In 2014, Toti was arrested, accused of advocating separatism, violence and the overthrow of the Chinese government, subjected to a two-day trial and sentenced to life. Nothing has been heard from him since. We Uyghurs have no say. A collection of his essays is out from Verso Books this month. In Toti's own words, these essays sound a measured insistence on peace and just treatment for the Uyghurs. Winner of the Penn Goldsmith Freedom to Write Award and the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought, while imprisoned, this book is the only way to hear from a man who has been called a Uyghur Mandela. And now to today's interview. Kojo Karam teaches at Birkbeck School of Law, part of the University of London. He's the editor of The War on Drugs and The Global Colour Line, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Nation, amongst other venues. His new book, which was the subject of our conversation, is Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. In recent years, a lot of the discussion around empire and Britain's imperial past has centred on questions of symbolism, statues, the names of our public buildings and the relationships between British imperialists and our most prestigious universities. 
Two of the more famous cases are the Roads Must Fall campaign, which began in South Africa, but of course spread to Oxford University, where students campaigned for a statue of the British imperialist and politician uh, Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College to be removed. And then there was also the very famous case of the toppling of the statue in Bristol of the English slave trader and merchant Edward Colston by Black Lives Matter protesters in June 2020 as part of the global protests initially sparked by the police murder of George Floyd in the United States. You're, of course, supportive of those protests and movements, but you make the very important point that organisers and participants have tended to somewhat neglect the way in which Britain's imperial past continues to structure Britain's relations with the world and has also had enormous influence in the way in which global capitalism was restructured in the post-war era and then during the neoliberal counter-revolution of the late 70s onwards. So we'll go into some of the specific examples that you give in the book. And in the book, you talk about things such as the emergence of, of, of tax havens, the very emergence of the corporate form and so on, and how it's, that's all imbricated with the colonial project. But could you briefly say something on what you think has been lacking in a lot of analysis of Britain's imperial history and the discussion around decolonization and those, those big, important protests? I mean, really good question, Alex. And first of all, thank you for having me on to talk about this book. It's a book that I've been working on for a while. As I was thinking about these issues of the way that empire informed um, not just the kind of symbolic realm, but also our material realm, I think the entire conversation was really accelerated by the response to George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter protests and the kind of national conversation around decolonization that happened in the wake of those protests, particularly the Edward Colson statue. And, you know, we're all familiar with the kind of general register in which this conversation's been had. It's discussing about the decolonization of curriculums in education, the decolonization of cultural institutions, the decolonization of art galleries, the changing of names of roads and buildings, and of course, the removal of statues, not just Edward Colston, but Robert Mulligan and many others. And whilst this is significant, and it is important, I really wanted to scream almost in a lot of the kind of interventions that I was making in the media at that time, that we do recognize that Empire wasn't a kind of global statue building project, like that wasn't its primary objective, that its main objective was about facilitating the transfer and expropriation of resources and wealth across the globe. And this material element of empire, I think, has been largely ignored, particularly the material element of empire that was protected during this period of decolonization. And so we can connect the way in which the aftermath of particularly the British Empire informs the emergence of things like the offshore world. The top three tax havens in the world are still British overseas territories with the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands. And um, we can look at things like the way in which the non-dom rule about property ownership has allowed for the heightening of property prices within places like the United Kingdom. So the, the world of assets and wealth is wholly divorced from the world of work, where no matter how hard people work, they're not able to be able to access those assets that could give them security. And I think that it's really important to remake this connection of the legacies of empire with the material struggles that people are facing today, because the backlash to the kind of Edward Colston moment, the backlash to the Black Lives Matter moment that we're seeing in the British conversation now is the attempt to try and contrast those who are concerned with questions of empire with those who are concerned with questions of inequality, with the left behind, with leveling up, as is the kind of common discussion now. 
And, and I suppose the left behind are often coded, even if it's not said, they're kind of coded as white. It's very much coded in racial terms, and it's seen as though this is something that's opposed to conversations about race, that, you know, people who are interested in empire are interested in identity politics, you know, the, you know, decolonization's about cancel culture, it's about, as the university's minister, Michelle Donnellan, said, it's about censorship, Soviet Union-style censorship were her words. It's not about concerns around wealth inequality, it's not around concerns around insecurity of work, around precarious employment. This isn't connected to empire and the aftermath of empire. And the real project of this book on Commonwealth was to remake that connection and to show that that couldn't be further from the truth. Presumably it's not that you would want to dismiss the discussions around symbolism and the aspects of the protests that were focused more on historic crimes, but that you would like to see a sort of a tandem approach where those questions are interrogated, but as you say, also the continued relevance of the empire and the, and the way it continues to structure the world and, and the uh, British economy, that that is also interrogated, which it seems for you has a certain kind of strategic value because, as you say, it anticipates and responds to that critique which says, well, you know, this isn't really of concern to ordinary people thinking about getting on with their day-to-day and, and work and, and getting by. Um, absolutely. The point of the book is not to kind of dismiss wholly the significance of changing the symbolic realm in which we all exist. You know, the impact of walking past a statue of a slaveholder every day or going to a concert hall that's named after a slaveholder is obviously something that inflicts a lot of psychic harm on individuals. But I think what I wanted to do with this project is return to that initial moment of decolonization. And just to remind us as we're using this phrase, decolonization, decolonization, what this actually meant. You know, decolonization wasn't a metaphor when it was implemented. It is a world-changing historical moment that occurred in its kind of formal process in the middle of the 20th century, where almost three quarters of the world transitioned from being colonial subjects into being sovereign nation states. This is a process which Britain is the main character of, because a lot of these independence days were being gained from Britain. So it transformed the structure of our world and created significant questions around the distribution of resources and the functioning of capitalism across the globe. And I think that this has been largely forgotten. And as an academic, I would probably say that, you know, my field has been responsible for the way in which we have transferred this discussion around the kind of legal and economic basis of of decolonization into the more cultural, symbolic and artistic elements. I think that with the kind of heartbreak of the failure of that first generation of independence movements, um, the struggle of witnessing the failed realization of sovereignty that occurred in sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia and Latin America, what we often saw was academics trying to understand what might have been missed in that initial engagement of decolonization and feeling that perhaps the answers might lie in attacking more the ways in which colonization informed our understandings of desire or visuality or language or art. And I think that this has had really significant insights and it has been useful in terms of opening up new ways of seeing how to be in the world. But I think that at this moment of compounding economic crises, climate crises, the kind of post-COVID world, 
People have real questions that they need answering about the erosion of living standards that regular people are wrestling with, not only in the global south, but also now in the global north, and particularly in places like the United Kingdom. Um, these questions are not disconnected from the history of empire. Far from that, they're wholly interwoven with that. And so I think bringing that back into the national conversation not only has a strategic element of not allowing people who were champions of austerity in 2008, like Michael Gove, to now be presenting themselves as, you know, the minister for leveling up and is concerned with the issues of insecurity and wealth inequality, but it also allows the conversation around empire to connect to people who are worrying about their monthly bills on a day-to-day -day basis. It helps them see how things like the energy crisis and the kind of unaccountable power of energy corporations like BP is wholly connected to its history as a former colonial company, which, you know, emerged as the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the way in which Britain's treatment of it in the aftermath of empire protected it from the kind of democratic pressures that might make it act differently than it's doing right now. I think we'll come on to the Iran case because it's, it's obviously a very interesting example and you write quite a bit about it in the book. But first, if we, if we go back to the introduction of the book, so there you take up the idea of history not as a, as a linear process of development, but rather as a boomerang with policies implemented in the global south by the imperial powers during the era of, of colonialism, eventually rebounding back on the global north. And you take up that idea from Aimé Césaire, the Martinique writer and politician. Could you talk a little bit about Césaire and, and how his work influences your argument here? Certainly. Aimé Césaire is a fascinating figure. Surrealist poet, a translator of Shakespeare, as well as a theorist and a politician himself. And I think with a lot of the romance that has started to surround, you know, one of Césaire's one-time protégés, Franz Fanon, um, Césaire has started to be a little bit forgotten in the kind of pantheon of, of great thinkers of the 20th century. But I think that he has real value in helping us understand those transformations around colonization in the 20th century. And I think that one of his greatest insights comes from this concept of the boomerang, this idea that what goes on in the colonies doesn't stay in the colonies, isn't something that those in Europe can simply forget about and think that, well, that's just impacting those people over there. It has little to do with our lives here in the center of empire. In fact, what happens in the colonies ends up bouncing back into Europe. And for, for Césaire, you know, he saw that in terms of the kind of violence and dehumanization of colonialism in the global south, boomerang back on Europe in terms of European fascism in the mid-20th century. And um, the idea of the boomerang is something that's been taken up by other thinkers. You know, Hannah Arendt talks about it in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Michel Foucault talks about it in Society Must Be Defended, where he describes the kind of policing tactics of the French colonies now informing security policies within France itself. And I think that the real value of the boomerang and the reason why I wanted to apply it to Britain's own post-colonial history is because I think it really turns on its head the kind of traditional understandings of how history moves, which, at least for people like me, you know, who will have emerged in the kind of 1980s, 1990s, end of history aftermath, is this idea that things move along this linear line of development, you know, so... The idea of the boomerang, I really wanted to contrast with the idea of development. And what do we mean by development? We do mean the, the, the new language for articulating and explaining away differences 
between global populations. And so with development, we're no longer talking about the ideas of kind of strict racial hierarchies of the kind of imperial era, that kind of scientific racism and fixed categorization, even though that sits underneath it. We instead talk about this idea that the relationship between the developed and the undeveloped is one kind of equivalent to relationship between a child and an adult. That innovations are being cultivated by the developed, which are going to be learned and adapted by the undeveloped, and then they are in the process of developing, and eventually they will reach a similar model to what has happened in places like the UK and in Europe. What I think we see, in fact, when we come to 2022, is not this idea of development in a traditional form where a lot of the places that were described as developing in the 1980s and 1990s are still described as developing here in 2022. So we need to think about how easily that that kind of trajectory of history is moving. But instead, what we are witnessing is the way in which a lot of elements of life in the global south that were seen as exclusive to the global south, whether we think about precarious employment, whether we think about, you know, the weakness of labor organizing, whether we think about rises of authoritarian government, all these elements which were seen as part of the growing pains of developing countries and now part of social and political life here in the so-called developed world. And I think that this idea of what happens in the global south, boomerang back into the global north, helps us really understand Britain's particular post-imperial history. A lot of what happened in the former colonies of Britain is now having an impact on the, the struggles and the erosion of standard of living that people are wrestling with in the United Kingdom today. You also emphasise the point that as well as, as you say, the emergence of labour practices that had been more associated with the South in terms of precarious employment, say, emerging in, in the global North, that the reverse is also true, that, that there are pockets of enormous luxury and wealth and privilege in the South, which tends to be not that well known and isn't really part of the picture. There's still, even today, is this sense that, you know, sub-Saharan Africa is just sort of poverty and, and nothing else. I think that's something that was really crystallized in that post-colonial era, this image of, you know, the kind of comic relief, live aid understanding of life in Africa, where everybody's kind of struggling through daily subsistence living, and that, you know, all these failings that we see in places like Africa aren't the result of global systems of economic wealth or on the result of legacies of empire, but are simply the results of people still in the early stages of this development process, people still on their way to becoming something like the United Kingdom. And I think that's a picture that still sticks, you know, people assume, and understandably, you know, I grew up in the era when the response to issues of poverty in Africa was things like the shoebox campaign. I don't know if people remember that in schools were where you kind of pack a shoebox full of you know, unwanted clothes or, you know, toys and send that over to Sub-Saharan Africa as though the, the problem of that region was simply its inability to access um, Western capitalist commodities. Now, anyone who's been to these places, like I was doing every year, would recognize that I think the last thing that is needed are discarded Nike trainers, you know what I mean? There's plenty of those if you want to go to Accra or Lagos or Nairobi, no matter the levels of poverty, you will still see, you know, children in Adidas and Nike, Manchester United kits. These commodities aren't absent from these areas and wealth isn't absent from these areas. Capitalism is absent from these areas. What they are is the kind of petri dish for the inequality 
and insecurity of life that we see now starting to bleed back into life here in the United Kingdom. I think that's a useful way to think about it, is to see what happened in Nigeria and in Kenya and Jamaica as a kind of laboratory for a more extreme version of capitalism that is starting to influence life here in the UK. And this is why not only do you see poverty within these areas, but you also see some of the most extravagant displays of capitalist grandeur, not in the global north now, but in the global south. You see that in Banana Island in Lagos, you see that in Dubai, you know, you see, you know, some of the richest people in the world like Dangote or Carlos Slim being people who operate within the global south. And you also see the kind of precariety of work. You also see the kind of powerlessness of democracy and being able to exercise sovereignty. And you see a lot of the dynamics that happen, that are happening now in the global north happen in the global south first. I think the way I like to think about it is that not that there's not a difference between these places, but that what happens in the global south is often what happens first and worst, but eventually it is coming for all of us. And this is why it's so important to know more about Britain's post-colonial history, because this is something that is going to affect our lives, even in Britain in 2022. On that point about the way in which it's not the case that the Global South is desperately deprived of consumer products, you give the very interesting example of Agbog Bloshi in Accra, what's been described as the largest electronic waste site in, in the world. And that's been reported on in similar places in in a lot of Western media and and a lot of liberal media and and left commentary. And typically it's described as places where electronic waste from the West is sent to be recycled or reused and so on, or or just is present there and the metals used leach into groundwater and so on. It's a cause of pollution. But you make the very important point that according to the UN, the majority of, of these consumer goods are actually discarded in West Africa, not in the North. Absolutely. This is something that I think growing up a little bit between the UK and Ghana, which was the first African nation state to gain its independence. And so of in that kind of traditional trajectory of development, it should be in the kind of forefront of that. And it's often presented like that in the Western media. But I would recognize that a lot of the narratives around development simply didn't reflect the reality that you witnessed when you actually walked through the land itself. And so, you know, when you go to this kind of suburb of Accra, Aglabloshi, where you would see all of these discarded waste products, you could see the way in which capitalism was highly present within Africa. You know, it's not that there was an absence of capitalism that needed to be brought into this world-making capitalist system. It was already at the forefront of the cutting edge of commodity production and commodity exploitation. And so you can see this kind of presence of multinational capital all across this, all across the region. When you think about the kind of, I mean, the, the presence of these multinational corporations, not only advertising on billboards and on the television, as you might get over here in the United Kingdom, but you see Pepsi painted on entire houses within township dwellings. You can see People standing at traffic lights all day in the baking sun, painted head to toe in a Fanta um, logo or in a in a Guinness logo, selling the products of these companies to passers-by as they drive through. And so this kind of omnipotent power that you see for corporations 
in the global south you know you go to places where you might not be able to access clean running water but you'll always be able to get access to a coca-cola makes you recognize that the problem isn't the absence of capitalism but it's in fact the kind of over presence of capitalism in this more kind of naked terrain and this is where a lot of the kind of cutting-edged interventions and innovations of capitalism are conducted on that point about the relative presence or absence of, of capital and Western consumer goods, I mean, it makes me think of the poster child of, of successful development. So uh, South Korea, for instance, which at the start of the post-war era was as poor as, as Nigeria was at the time and was, was considered you know, a basket case. And South Korea very much developed by doing exactly what you're not supposed to do. Huge protectionism, the building up of sort of infant industries and you know, loss-making industries that, that were you know, losing money for decades. And it was incredibly difficult to acquire a lot of Western consumer goods because of the enormous taxes that would be slapped on them. But Korea is able to do this because it's a frontline Cold War state in a, in a way that you know a nation in West Africa isn't. Going back to the point about Cesare and, and the idea of, of the boomerang, would you say that in the scholarly literature, most of that literature tends to focus on the security side. So it's the importation of colonial policing practices, or it's the racial classification that that feeds into fascism and uh, and Nazism in Europe. And that there's an absence of that thesis of of the boomerang when it comes to just, you know, straightforward liberal capitalism, because it seems like that's, that's something that's particularly valuable about the book, I think. I think that there has been a a relative silence about this dynamic of the boomerang going beyond the more kind of explicit manifestations of violence that often come in the colonial project. People look at things like security and policing and population control and even data surveillance and use the mechanism of the boomerang to try and explain the way in which it gets imported back into the global north. But I think with the crisis of neoliberalism that we've had since the post-2008 era, in places like the United Kingdom, we're starting to see increasing applications of the boomerang structure in analysis of things like austerity. So when we look at the way in which the narrative of debt was used to privatise public industries and cut benefits and kind of weaken the social safety net in the United Kingdom in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, we started to see some scholars talk about the resonance that that process had with the incidences of structural adjustment programs that really gutted the kind of sovereignty of former colonies in sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, when we think about the kind of emergence and normalization of precarious employment and this idea of not having a traditional labor organizing structure to our actual work lives, we're starting to see people look at the way in which the informal economy of the global south, where, you know, people would work at multiple gig jobs and move from informal job to informal job in an attempt to try and carve out a sufficient standard of living. That's now starting to bleed back into our understandings of what's known as the precariat over here in the United Kingdom. And I think that application of what's happened in the global south is starting to be applied a little bit more to what's going on in the global north. I think you also start to see this even in kind of reactionary responses to any time there's a an unexpected problem with the actual functioning of society here within the global north. I think, you know, two examples that come to mind is, you know, the Capitol Hill riot in the United States following um, the Trump-Biden election. And you heard 
so many commentators in the kind of mainstream liberal press talk about, you know, this is horrific. You wouldn't expect this in America. You know, this might happen in Nigeria or Uganda, but this is not expected in America. Absolutely. And similar also with the kind of failure of state infrastructure that happened in the United States and in the United Kingdom in the immediate era of the COVID-19 crisis. You know, that site of devastated overrun hospitals and inability of the state to respond adequately to the needs of the population and rather responding to the interests of private capital, you started to see people say, you know, this isn't what you'd expect in the United Kingdom. You would expect this, you know, in the developing world in Africa or in the Caribbean. And so this kind of idea that what's going on over there is starting to come up over here, I think is starting to become a little bit more common. And what I want to do with this book is to try and analyze why that's happening, what happened in that decolonial era to Ghana, Jamaica, Singapore, Nigeria, Iran, all these other places, and how does that feed into issues that we have today around corporate unaccountability, around problems of democracy, around the operation of the border, and around the fluidity of finance all across the world. Another example of the way in which policies implemented in the, in the South boomerang back to the North is so-called outsourcing. Now, that's a term that we probably associate particularly with companies today such as G4S and, and, and Serco. And it tends to be seen as part of a process that begins with the wave of privatisation, that begins with the Thatcher government. But you argue that it, it's present all the way through the colonial period, right back to before the emergence of, of Britain, before the act of, act of union. So could you talk about that a little bit? So I think the reason why I wanted to talk about this outsourced nature of the British Empire was because I really wanted to stress the specificity of the British Empire in contrast to a lot of the other European empires. You know, when we look at the French Empire or the Belgian Empire, we don't see the similar outsized role played by private capital as we see in the British example. We don't see equivalents of the Hudson Bay Company, the Royal Africa Company of Edward Colston, the Royal Niger Company, and perhaps most famously of all, the East India Company. I think that when we recognize that in the British example, colonialism wasn't so much a clash between nations or a clash between races, but very much a commercial endeavor in a lot of examples, we can start to understand a little bit better the kind of protections that are inbuilt in Britain's legal and economic system for corporate power, which have an immediate connection to things like the inability to exercise responsibility on corporations in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, all the way up to the current energy crisis that are leading to individuals seeing their monthly bills going up and up and up, whilst places like BP you know, have a chief executive who talks about how the energy crisis is turning his company into a cash machine. You can't understand why the British state isn't levying a windfall tax on these companies without understanding the history of that company, which takes us all the way back to its origins as a colonial company, as first the Anglo-Persian and then the Anglo-Iranian oil company in the early 20th century. Would it be fair to say that, in your view, the way in which the business of conquest and of empire was outsourced served to obscure what was going on and to insulate the public in the metropole 
from the reality of empire because obviously in the, you know in the british case there's no equivalent of say with the french empire of, of algeria becoming a department of france where it's you know it's directly colonized and becomes part of the of the country everything is is at that greater step removed with with the british empire it seems Absolutely. I think that, you know, the kind of amnesia that we have about empire, the way in which the entire imperial project has been very much edited out of the kind of national narrative. And this isn't something that just happened in the aftermath. We can look at people like John Robert Seeley, the writer, and Charles Dilke, who talked about the ignorance of empire even in its heyday within the United Kingdom, the John Robert Seeley line, which is quite famous, is that we seem, as it were, to have conquered the world in an absence of mind, that we don't know where our colonies expand to, we don't know where our empire stretches to. I think that was really facilitated by the kind of privatization of the imperial project. The idea that this isn't part of the national narrative of the Tudors or gunpowder plots or all the things that we learn about in history. This is the, you know, private accounting details of the East India Company or the Royal Niger Company. And so world-changing historical events like the Opium Wars or the unification of Nigeria aren't seen as part of the general national archive. I think that this erasure of that element of the British Empire also blinds us to understand how British imperialism connects to the material concerns that we have today, connects to things like the emergence of the offshore world, connects to things like the way in which corporations are unaccountable to democratic pressures. And when we start to look at that material base of the British Empire, I think we're much better able to connect it with the very real material struggles that people are wrestling with today. If we go on to the era of decolonization, I mean, you point out that one of the, the, the very striking things about that era is that, of course, with the end of formal empire and, and the establishment of, of new sovereign states, there was an assumption that that would mean a reduction in inequality globally, since these countries would no, no longer be subject to direct exploitation. But quite clearly, the reverse has happened, and we've seen a, a dramatic increase in, in global inequality. In the book, you have various examples where you describe the process whereby decolonization was effective at one level in, in establishing these new states, but was defeated in terms of transforming power relations globally. And one of the examples you give, and you, you've already touched on this, is the case of Iran. And you take the example of the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, and the overthrow of his government in a British and American organised coup in 1953 to show the way in which the corporate form first developed during the era of formal imperialism was used to undermine state sovereignty in Iran. So can you talk about the coup in the lead up to it and, and how you think it illustrates your argument? I think that this is a historical event that is so pivotal in terms of the form that the post-imperial world of nations would ultimately take. And so this is one of the early confrontations between the interests of colonial companies and their property claims and this phenomenon that was then described as third world nationalism, third world sovereignty, the spread of decolonization to all these places that hadn't wielded sovereignty in that way up until that moment. And so we have the Anglo-Iranian oil company that obviously cultivates the oil refineries in the Abadan region in the early 20th century. And, you know, through its partnership with the British state has a very close relationship with power and interest of the British government overall. But following the election of a much more nationalist prime minister in 1951, Mohammad Mossadegh, Iran undertakes a project of trying to use its resources in order to construct the equivalent of a welfare state. So Mossadegh wants to use the oil that's in Iran 
to fund expansions in education, health, welfare, things that were actually being implemented in the United Kingdom at that very time by the government of Clement Attlee. And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be aware, you know, Attlee is regularly canonized as the most progressive politician in British history. You know, his government facilitated the creation of the welfare state, the expansion of council house building, and also the nationalization of a lot of failing industries into government control in order to fund the welfare state. And so you might anticipate that there would be a recognition between the Atlee government and with the project that Mossadegh was trying to undertake. But that was very much not what happened. Instead, the response of the Atlee government towards the nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company's property in Iran was to, first of all, seek a UN Security Council resolution to be able to wage war against Iran. When that failed, they then took them to the ICJ in order to get them disciplined by international law. And then when that failed, by then the Ali government had been replaced by the Churchill government, who was also a one-time paid lobbyist for the Anglo-Iranian oil company. That Churchill government facilitated the kind of anti-communist paranoia of the Eisenhower administration in the USA in order to support a coup which removed Mossadegh from power and ultimately put in place a prime minister who will be much more agreeable to the interests of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. The Anglo-Iranian oil company received its property back and decided it might be a good idea to rebrand itself and change its name. And that's when it becomes British Petroleum, what we now know as BP. And I think that the significance of this moment isn't just for helping us understand, you know, what I've mentioned already as the kind of growth and expansion of corporate power so much that it's unaccountable to democratic forces. It can also help us understand, you know, the erosion of the welfare state that we're struggling with here in the United Kingdom. I think that the nationalist myopia of the Attlee government in siding with the Anglo-Iranian oil company has led to the undermining of the welfare state that they worked so hard to construct over here in the UK. By stopping the Iranians being able to challenge the power of companies like BP, we now have a system where what has been the payback for the British government for supporting BP in that way. BP is regularly cited as one of the largest tax avoiders in the United Kingdom, often receiving tax rebate despite billions of pounds of profit. BP is responsible for a lot of the largest environmental disasters that have happened around the world, including the Deepwater Horizon disaster, which has devastated wildlife and cost the lives of 11 people in the Gulf of Mexico. At the time of the Deepwater Horizon crisis, the London mayor at the time was Boris Johnson, and he described any attacks on BP as simply being anti-British. But I think what we really want to wrestle with, you know, in 2022, as we're all facing this energy crisis, we're all facing escalating bills, we're all facing a squeeze of living standards, and the directors of BP are celebrating record profits, thinking to ourselves, how British are these companies? You know, how much are they invested in the day-to-day lives and the day-to-day well-being of people that exist within this country? I think that the consequence of the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis has led to a world in which companies like BP are not invested in places like the United Kingdom. They are disconnected from places like the United Kingdom. And that has been the result of the British government siding with them over the threat of third world sovereignty in the 1950s. 
Another interesting aspect of, of the Iran example is you mentioned this comment from the early neoliberal thinker Ludwig von Mises on the question of nationalisation. And he says that if it is right for the British to nationalise the British coal mines, it cannot be wrong for the Iranians to nationalise the Iranian oil industry. And on the face of it, that could sound like he's defending the actions of, of the, uh, the Mossadegh government. But obviously, it's quite the reverse. Can, can you explain what he meant with that statement? Absolutely. Von Mises is really pointing out the kind of hypocrisy of Britain engaging in nationalization domestically whilst insisting upon the rights of private capital overseas. But, you know, as Mossadegh and the kind of neoliberals he was in conversation with, which would really kind of inform the emergence of the Thatcherite turn in the Conservative Party, recognized early that the goal was not simply to stop nationalization within the former colonies, within the developing world, but also to turn away from nationalization in the very heart of the developed world. And so for von Mises and others, the answer to the hypocrisy of Britain nationalizing at home and privatizing abroad was for Britain to privatize at home. And that's what we've seen come to pass over the subsequent few decades. And I think that this dynamic can really help us understand the myopia, like I said, of the social democratic welfare governments like the Attlee government in the immediate post-imperial moment. I kind of use this description in the book of they treated private capital almost like a beloved family pet who they said, you know, you've got to behave when you're in the house, but as soon as you get out the house, you can buy whoever you want, you can tear everything up. And um, as anybody who's, you know, ever tried to have pets will know, if you have that kind of attitude towards it, eventually you're going to have a pet that's biting people and destroying everything in the house. And I think that's very much what we've seen with companies like BP. Another example from the era of decolonization that, that you write about is Kwame Nkrumah, the first president and prime minister of Ghana, who you argue discovered just how effectively Britain had served to restrict the sovereignty of, of decolonized nations uh, during his time in, in power. Can you talk about Nkrumah's time in office and, and his eventual overthrow as well in, in a coup in, in, in 1966? Yeah, um, so I think Nkrumah is another significant figure that I think is really worth us revisiting, not only because we have an interest in the developing world or the global south, but because we want to understand the dynamics of global capitalism all around the world today. You know, Nkrumah was seen at one point as the, the father of a new Africa. You know, this is a figure who when he spoke of the United Nations in the 1960s, was seen as significant and world-changing figure as Martin Luther King. So much was the optimism in this expansion of third world sovereignty in that particular moment. You know, Nkrumah becomes the first leader of an independent sub-Saharan African nation-state when he turns the Gold Coast colony of Britain into Ghana. And, you know, his election is attended by Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon and covered by the world's media with this idea that now we're entering into this new world of nations, this new world of sovereignty, where rather than sovereignty being the exclusive possession of a few places, it's something that all people around the world can exercise through their democratic will. And this was Nkrumah's goal in his kind of early years. You know, his famous dictum was the idea that seek ye first the political kingdom and everything else shall fall onto you. That, you know, don't worry about capitalism, don't worry about the mechanisms of private finance, gain the powers of state, gain the instrument of state power, and those other things will resolve themselves. 
Unfortunately, when he entered into office, he quickly realized that the private interests of companies like the Ashanti Goldfields Corporation, which was the major British gold mining company within what was then the Gold Coast and then Ghana, was a serious counterbalance to the forces of state that he'd been able to accumulate as the prime minister and eventual president. Um, also, is a kind of growing closeness and allegiance with the Soviet Union turned him from being seen as a kind of representation of African nationalism into being a potential ally of the Soviet Union and a communist threat. And as a result of that, despite his his reluctance to immediately expropriate resources from corporations to not suffer the same fate that Mossadegh had suffered in the 50s. By the early 1960s, Nkrumah was also removed from office by a military coup and also died in exile from the nation that he had led to independence. And so his story is another story of how, how third world sovereignty was really handcuffed in rather crude ways in the 1950s and 1960s with interventions like military coups that impacted, you know, Mozadek and Nkrumah. And then increasingly, as we start to get to the 80s and 90s, in more sophisticated ways, in structural adjustment programs, the pressures of debt bondage, in more sophisticated legal mechanisms that ensured that no matter who was the sovereign government in the developing world, capitalism would be able to operate uninterrupted. And it's that architecture, it's that encasing, in the words of uh, the historian Quint Slobodian, of private capital from the interests of sovereignty that happened in the aftermath of empire, we can see a lot of the struggles that we now are wrestling with, even in the United Kingdom, of being able to subject capitalist interests to democratic governance. You know, when people talk about the feeling of loss of control and the feeling of disempowerment and disenfranchisement, even in the United Kingdom. This is part of that entire history of encasing capitalism from the interests of third world sovereignty, which also leads to encasing it from the interests of sovereignty, even in places like the United Kingdom. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.